I'm Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is Dr. Michael Tatinetti, who is the founder of Pricing for Associations, a training and consulting firm on a mission to advance associations in their pricing models for financial sustainability. And sustainability is an issue these days, so I'm very happy to have him as my guest. He and his team help associations clarify their value, set the right price, and communicate their value and price for sustainability. Dr. Michael is a certified association executive, a certified pricing professional, and Association Form 40 Under 40 Award recipient for his dedication to the association field. Uh, Dr. Michael, congratulations on that. Welcome to the show. Uh, We know we can learn more about you at pricingforassociations.com, but right now, let's dive right in and start with the biggest mistakes associations make in pricing. What do you see in this area? Yeah, well, first, Mary, thank you for having me on today. I appreciate that and so glad to be here. Uh, So the biggest mistake that I see associations making with pricing is definitely giving away too much for free. (laughs) And I think that probably most people listening would nod their head a bit and go, yeah, that's accurate. Um, But for me, I think that while our hearts are always in the right place and we want to fulfill our mission and serve our members, uh, even our sponsors, and make sure that they're staying afloat during this pandemic and these, these difficult times, that we have to balance that with the reality of cash flow and of our own reserves and payroll and what we need to do. And so the biggest mistake that I consistently see is jumping to free, feeling the pressure to do free, um, because it's typically not a strategic move where they say, okay, we're going to give, let's say, attendance for free, but we know that we're capturing uh, and monetizing our sponsorships in a way where it's offsetting it. Typically, it's just a sporadic emotional decision, which again goes back to our hearts, but it doesn't quite help for us moving forward. So I see a lot of fear-based pricing mm-hmm. that if we charge too much, nobody will sign up, nobody will participate. And uh, and and we're going to talk a little bit about value-based pricing as we go along here. So I think that you know that's part of it in terms of, of mistakes. I think letting emotion rule the day is a mistake. And I think undervaluing is a mistake and not really knowing what our costs are. So, you know, a lot of times we just uh, overhead just isn't really considered and it's sort of just magically running in the background. And there's a lot of associations when they really dig into their pricing, they find out that they're actually losing money on things they, they think they've been making Yep. money on. Uh, you mentioned the pandemic. So let's address that. How has, it, what if anything, has changed about pricing due to the pandemic? Yeah. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Um, I think that there's been good and bad. Um, I think that some of the bad, of course, has been, as I just mentioned, like giving things away for free, just based on emotion and not having a strategy. But some of the good that I've seen, and that's where I would love to camp for a second on this, Um, is that I've seen associations having real conversations about the value that they provide. And when you have the conversation about value and what do your sponsors, your members, your attendees, what do they value? What you're really doing is having a conversation about innovation and about sunsetting things that aren't working and about starting new things that can work. So that's actually, to me, a really good silver lining that we're discussing our products and services 
and saying, how do we partner and what should we do differently? Um, I've literally, this is not a joke. I've literally met with associations. It used to shock me when they would say it's been five to 10 years since they updated their pricing. I had one recently who I won't name them, but it told me it had been 20 years. And it, that is more common than you might think. If it look, I think if we just think of our own organizations that we've worked at, it's not uncommon for it to be at least five years that go by before you look at certification pricing or what you're charging for your event or your membership. So it's actually really common and normalized. And the good thing I think that has come out really has been saying, wait, what are we offering? What are we doing? How do we change it up? And that really comes down to listening to your people, uh, doing some market research, having conversations, and then sitting back with that data and pondering for a little bit, what does this look like? Do we take this on? Is this something that we can solve? And how can we do it in the best way possible? Uh, so I don't think we need to overhaul and transform everything that we do in one year. That's too much. But I do think that we are having conversations about what can we do this year? What are some incremental steps to improve what we offer and then capture the price so that we're not pricing out of fear or worry that no one will pay for it because we are solving a need and people are willing to pay for that need to be solved. So you're, you're really advocating a deliberate and intentional approach to pricing. And I, th those are step, those two words that's speaking my language because I believe we need to be deliberate and intentional about everything that we're doing. Um, and as you mentioned, deciding what we're no longer going to do, deciding what's new, being future focused. Uh, so those absolutely. And I think, uh, the, the saddest thing that I see is complacency. Mm -hmm. And and just kind of coasting. And when those things happen, that though that it doesn't bode well for, for an organization. And then all of a sudden you wake up and 20 years have passed and pricing hasn't changed. And right. uh sometimes pricing changes can be a battle anyway. So I'm sort of in the camp that let's just keep up little by little with changes rather than having to go for the big price, you know, the big yes. increase. Yeah. Every 10 years or something like that. Um, you, you mentioned this whole idea of free. And, and I do believe, actually, that there were some times and there are some times mm -hmm. to use free as a model. I mean, it can be yes. a, a way to increase your reach. It can be a way to bring more members into the association. It can be a way to enhance value. So before we move on with the next question, can you talk a little bit about free as a strategy? Yes. I love that you brought that up because free is definitely a, a part of something to keep in your back pocket. So I think that there are different ways you can offer, of course, um, just a free seat, knowing that you're compensating it with revenue elsewhere, you might recognize that something is a is a loss leader for you, and that's okay. Like we look at uh, if if you go to Costco or one of those you know big membership type of stores and you buy chicken for $5, we know that they're not making money on that, but they get you to buy that so that you then go buy the 50 pack of toilet paper where they're profiting. So there's nothing wrong within your organization of saying, maybe membership, we're kind of breaking even. We know our direct and indirect costs and maybe we're breaking even. Or maybe we're offering something for free. Maybe we're doing a lunch and learn series for free, but what is the strategy behind it? So it might be that you were targeting lapsed members, non-members, and maybe inactive members, mostly in your campaign. If active members come, that's fine, but maybe you are intentionally sending your emails 
segmenting ads to those emails across LinkedIn and Facebook so that you're saying, hey, come, we have this for you. Come join us for a four-part Lunch and Learn series in the month of February, uh, every Wednesday at noon. And that becomes something that re-engages people with the end goal being that they become a member or it helps with membership retention. So that's where, for me, there has to be a strategy of what is the journey that we're taking the customer on? What is the sales funnel effectively? Where are they at in the process? And how are we moving them towards loyalty, towards coming to conference, being a member, being active and engaged in the organization? Uh, this way, we're not losing them and having this big, long list of lapsed members that are just notches in our belt, but aren't gaining anything from us. Um, I And that, to me, Mary, goes back to what you just said in the last one too, which is you go 10 years without updating the price and then people are conditioned to not expect price increases. But then what they're also conditioned for is to not expect for you to innovate and offer anything new. So when the membership package is still, you're getting a newsletter or a journal and whatever you know the basic things are, but that's not what they need in their day-to-day job then you're not listening and you're not solving a need for them. They don't have a need for you. So I think absolutely that free is a great strategy, but it's something that should be used um, very intermittently. It should be attached to a strategy of how are we moving them along, knowing that not everyone will convert, not everyone will progress through the you know your goal, but maybe a percent to set, to set a KPI and say, okay, our goal is that 20% of people or 10% of people who come to this lunch and learn will renew their membership or will become maybe 5% will become a member within the next two months because we're going to continue an email campaign and again, further follow up to highlight what's new. So there has to be the strategy, but absolutely I'm fine with free, just not everything free and definitely with not without a strategy um, because otherwise what what's the benefit? What's the win-win? There is none. Yeah, the, the, the whole strategy piece is understanding why you're doing yes. something and what you hope to achieve. And I uh, certainly would agree with that. Uh, do you have a method that you use or recommend for association when it comes to pricing? I do. Um, it, there are many steps that we can take. Um, the I'll give kind of the high level. It, it depends on if it's a new organization or not. So do they have a lot of historical data? And then it also depends on, is it a new product or not? So do they have some specific data for that product? So there is some nuance, but in general, um, what I would tell an organization is to uh, begin with analyzing um, any historical data that you have that helps and and by segments, especially if it's something that's being renewed, look at access, look at what are they actually utilizing before you even do any market research with them. Look at what is, what's the reality, what's the truth. From there, I like to do market research. Um, and of course, segmenting by different personas, demographics, um, so that you can determine what do you know your newest people like, what do lapsed people, what do your loyal long-term, what do the new people who have no idea who you are. Uh, this way you can get an idea of what do they value. And, and what you're really measuring there is what are you positioning this as? What do they think about it? What's missing, et cetera. And then I also ask pricing questions. And if you're going to DIY it, what I recommend is um, utilizing the Van Westendorp uh, method, uh, which is a simple four-part question series, but it effectively is going to give you an idea of what their willingness to pay is based on the value that you've pitched. 
Um, the one big nuance there that I will give is you have to pitch it correctly. So I've had some organizations when they DIY it um, who maybe slap together like a quick paragraph, like especially if it's something new, saying, hey, here's something we're going to launch. And then they start asking all these questions, including pricing, and they get lowballed and they go, wait, we think this is worth way more. Uh, I would recommend maybe having a three to five minute demo where you really explain why is this being created? How does it look, feel, and sound? Like show them in the LMS or sh show them what it'll be like. And then what is the ROI for them? This is what you're going to be able to do or have access to that will change your career or for a sponsor that will change how you build your brand and your leads with our members. So show them it, ask those questions, and then from there, do some market testing. So position, uh, kind of, if you're going to tweak the value a bit based on that feedback, tweak it, reposition it, recalibrate the video or the demo, and then position it as here's what we're offering, here's the pricing, and what would incentivize you to sign up. Um, the other thing that you can do there is conjoint analysis. Um, uh, and basically you would have an AB option where you might say, would you pick this package at this price or this slightly modified package at a different price so that you can determine what they value and you might have a series of AB options. So there really might be 10 things and you keep pitting them against each other, almost like a college football bracket and seeing who becomes, you know, the winner. So that, that, that's my quick, like, if you're going to do it, here's how it kind of looks um, at a high level. But absolutely, you can be very methodical in determining your value and your pricing. We don't, I don't look at competitors really, which sounds crazy. I don't look at costs really, which sounds crazy. Um, we do look at that. But after I do everything else, I start with the value and do value-based pricing. Typically, if you do that, you're more than going to exceed your costs and your competitors don't matter. I love that. We want yeah, to make our competitors not matter. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that's another thing I see, too, uh, in the whole fear-based pricing thing is if you're looking at what other people are doing and you're trying to compete on price, mm -hmm. uh, Seth Godin calls that a race to the bottom. It, it is. It is. And we call that pricing wars within the pricing field. And yes, Seth, yes, Seth does call that a race to the bottom. And that's exactly what it is. First of all, then you're only comparing the same value. So you're not going to differentiate or innovate or listen to your people because what they've packaged might not be the totality of what your audience needs. Maybe if you listen and you add those extra two or three things, it's a no-brainer. But instead, you tend to compare the packaging, not just the pricing, but the packaging and the price. And then you keep discounting. And then before you know it, no one's making any profits and you're stuck. Um, instead, you should establish yourself as an authority and a solution and an answer in a community and then allow other people to raise their standard or some people will be price sensitive and will just purchase the cheapest thing. And that's okay. Your goal is not to have all 7 billion people in the world join your organization. It's to maybe have the few thousand or tens of thousands that you're setting a goal for to join. So you just need your piece of the pie and to communicate correctly. My philosophy is that I want my organization uh, to be the one that everybody else is competing with. I love that. That that's I completely agree, and I love that statement, Mary. I love that. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot that's... of confidence, and it takes a lot of boldness to do it. But but yes. if you've done everything else right, and you are coming from a position of strength, 
mm-hmm. and you are creating excellence in everything you do, then it's easier to yes. achieve because if you're not coming from a position of strength or you have mediocre offerings, then you're not going to be the one that everybody else competes with. That's accurate. Um, Let's talk about because associations are unique and that boards are involved in our governance. Um, And really, uh, pricing is an internal strategy decision, but often the board will get involved and sometimes bylaws might require uh, strategy to be approved. And sometimes an exec will just include the board so that everybody's on the same page and there are no surprises. But have you seen situations when the board has derailed a new pricing effort? And if so, what's your advice to association professionals? Yeah, I think um, in my experience, staff tend to include the board a bit more often than than I would even think, um, which has been interesting this past year. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I do agree it does give opportunity for some derailing or just not understanding. So what some things that I recommend, uh, preventatively, I would say it would be great then to maybe have someone from the board who, of course, is the person that will influence everybody else to maybe sit in on some of the meetings as you're determining price. If you're working with a consultant, have them sit in on some of those meetings. If you're doing it independently, though, um, take them on the journey. But ultimately, if you get to the point where it's being derailed and it's not about prevention, it's about protecting and figuring it out, I wouldn't be afraid to push it back to the board, but make a strong case study. So I think back to like studying for the CAE, right? And this almost being like a, a question for that. But thinking back to saying, okay, we can do this or we can do that. And here are the ramifications. Here's the following. One thing that I love is uh, when I'll give a specific example. When we talk about discounting, that's something that a lot of boards love to do. And again, it goes with that free mentality of let's discount and maybe we'll see an increase in enrollment. But what I typically then explain to people, I'm going to try to keep the math super simple because I'm not, um, I'm visual. So, so doing this auditorily is not my strength. But let's say that you have something that is $100. Keep it really simple. And let's say that you're direct and indirect costs. If you do the math and you really figure it out with staff time and all of that is uh, $60. So you're making a 40% profit margin, right? Now, it's easy for the board to say, let's discount. And when you're going to discount, you're typically going to do at least 5 to 10%. No one discounts 3%. Um, and really 10% feels like the entry point, but then you might discount 20 or 25%. Well, now if you discount 20%, that brings it down to 80, but your costs are still 60, which means that you've just caught, cut your profit margin in half. So now instead of a 40% profit margin, you're down to 20. So you look at it. I think boards can easily think and people can easily think, Oh, we're discounting 10 or 20%. So our profit will go down 10 to 20%. No. That's cutting into your profit. And more than likely, a 10 to 30% discount, which is the normal range, is going to result in one third to beyond one half of your profit margin. So is that smart? Because now you need to double the number of sales in order to make the same amount of money. So by giving that 20% discount to an event or to a sponsor or to membership, uh, you now have to sell more than twice as much just to make it make sense. And you're not going to because the cost of getting new people is way harder than getting the cost of people to come back. So I would present a case like that to the board. I would say, if we do this, 
then here's the ramification. If we don't, here's what we're looking at. What do you want to do? This way, the responsibility falls back on them a bit. Now, if you control the pricing decisions as the CSE, uh, if they've set the budget, but you're setting the price, I might even just pull that Trump card and say, listen, this is what we've decided. Um, Albeit losing your job and making enemies with the board. But if they're deciding, present the case, let them decide the fallout. And then after, unfortunately, if they make a bad choice and there are bad consequences, then you have the, the angle to come back and say, this is what we said might happen. So moving forward, here's what I recommend. So you mentioned uh, choice, giving them a choice, option A and option B. And that is something actually, as I've worked with boards and uh, on increasing their risk tolerance and their willingness to innovate and their willingness to try new things, that is the number one thing I hear back from boards is give us a choice so that when staff brings a proposal, we don't have to vote it up or down. Yes, we can choose between A and B, and it may be a choice between uh, the less risky of the two opportunities. But at least we have a choice, and we don't have to uh, to, to vote you down. It's not an either or. We we can pick. The other thing that occurred to me as you were talking, if we put as much effort and energy into having excellent, stellar products as we do in figuring out how much we can discount them and and get by with them, we wouldn't need to discount because we would be the must-have certification, the must-have programming, the must-not-miss webinars, that kind of thing. So I think when we talk about strategy, I think some of this goes back to our internal values and and what we strive for. Um, Dr. Michael, I could talk to you all day long, but as we wrap up, do you have a pricing story with a happy ending that you can share to motivate listeners? Because I, I think it can be a little overwhelming Mm-hmm. to think about the work of of looking at pricing and developing a pricing strategy and changing pricing going forward. So uh, give us a happily ever after so that if I'm on a staff, I am now motivated to really sit and think about how we price and 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 how we're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I actually have two in my head, but I'll give you one. Um, so the good thing is there can be more than one happy ending too. Uh, one of them is an organization that I worked with. The number one complaint they kept hearing from their members was, we need training on how to work with this other department that we collaborate with a lot because we're not able to move the initiatives forward in the certification that you're teaching us. So we kept hearing that and we kept saying, okay, well, we always know that's their number one problem. One year we sat down and we said, okay, how do we solve the problem? So we spoke with them, you know, did what I spoke about earlier, market research and data analysis and all that jazz. And what we realized was that we could create a really quick, like 10 hour training for that adjacent component. We already had people internally who were stakeholders that would advocate for them to do the training and it would teach them the impact of what was happening with our main members for the organization. So there was kind of this win-win-win where the organization would win, our members would win, and the adjacent people would gain some additional training and it might help them in their career. So we launched that. We priced it. We used price anchoring for it. So we said, okay, if our certification is normally this long and this is the price and what percentage of it, et cetera, to determine the price of this smaller program, um, really simple program. But out the gate, I mean, we kept having uh, uh, 
large organizations ask for this. And out of the gate, we did a quarter million dollar sale within the first two months of launching it because we knew we were, again, data, we were listening, but we never quite said, how can we solve this? And that was a good chunk of our uh, against our annual budget. It, it brought in some great revenue. Um, but the nice thing was it continues to do well. It's solving a need. We're now seeing a shift in the problems that our members have because we listened and we created something of value and we took the time to do that and price it accordingly. And it's an audience we wouldn't normally hit, but the stars just all kind of aligned because we were strategic and we listened and we said, how can we help solve this problem? And in doing that, it's it's been great to have that additional revenue, especially this was about a year or two before COVID. So that buffer is always welcomed when you then have a downturn. Uh, so for me, I've got others, but I think the idea of not just pricing well, but solving a need well and packaging value well, it all goes hand in hand. Uh, and, and it can definitely produce some great results that makes your sponsors, your members happy, and keeps your mission moving along so that you don't go extinct. So you mentioned that you had two, just for fun. I'm going to put you on the spot and uh, ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the second one is kind of fun. Um, It's one where an organization uh, came to me, already had pricing in their head, said, this is what we want to price. It's something brand new, right? So pricing is out of thin air, out of their back pocket, but they 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 uh, asked me to help them with it. We worked on it for for a couple of months, and through all the research, we determined that they had priced it about two times too high, um, which sounds bad, right? Like, okay, that means you're not going to make sales, and you've done all this work for nothing. Um, I'll tell you, quick aside, it's best to start working on value and pricing before you make the products, not after you make the products. So the right time to start is when you have the idea to maybe do something. All that being said, though, the nice thing was, as we did the research and spoke with the market, with the members about this new offering, um, they had a larger overwhelming response of people who were interested, especially at that lower price point. Now, normally I don't advocate for a lower price point. My goal kind of coming in, it depends. But 80% of the time, it's to raise the price, not lower the price. But in this case, we did lower it, but we tested it. And they were able to adjust their projections and their pro forma in such a way that their revenue goals were higher. So year one, they actually made more because they properly aligned the price. We we changed some of the packaging. We said, okay, if it's going to go down, we need to take out some of the value that's in it to make it make sense. Um, But overall, we were able to kind of unified in a way where they actually were able to make more than what they thought they were going to, even though we lowered the price, because again, value, communication, pricing all goes hand in hand. So that's one that I like, because even though you would hear initially price went down and go, how is this a happy ending? They did much better and they were able to serve more people. And it's a good thing. So uh, very, very happy with that. And it meant that they got more sponsors because there were more people in this program. So sponsor interest went up and that brought in additional revenue there as well, which exceeded those expectations too. So properly pricing and positioning was a a, a fun thing with that project. (laughs) And that goes back to deliberate and intentional when you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I love it when I hear from associations who say this exceeded our expectations. And that's what value-based pricing will do for you. Yes. Rather than a fight, 
it really makes things easier and in a lot of cases will help you exceed revenue expectations. And who doesn't want to do that, especially now? Dr. Michael, thank you for being my guest today. If you're interested in learning more about him, pricingforassociations.com. I'm Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. 